as I was sitting there, it's, as I've mentioned before, it's just, I love this event. I love what the Lord does in this event. And just getting the opportunity to stand there and listen to this joyful noise that's created from good notes, harmonious notes, bad notes, the speak singers, you know, the guys that, that kind of just speak the words out. And it's just so beautiful to just sit there and listen and just can't imagine what it'll be like one day to be with all the saints singing, right? Well, my mission today is to discuss the impact of Christian unity. Um, we'll be in Psalm 133 if you want to turn there. Uh, this is our theme verse this year, and it's going to be the foundation of our study today. And, you know, honestly, I, recently I was met with just an overwhelming amount of evidence pertaining to the impact of unity, uh, especially this past month. And anybody that goes to CCO understands that well. One story where I saw unity so greatly displayed is not mine to tell. But personally, this week, leading up to this, I spent much of my prep time in the hospital with my children. But that's not the point. The point is I saw my church family come alongside me, support me in any way they could, meals, prayer, taking my kids emergently and watching them. Men came alongside me to ensure this event still happened without any problems. My wife sacrificed to ensure I could still focus on this event so that I'd have time to prep. All three of my children saw the inside of an ER in 72 hours this week, and my two-year-old spent almost a week there. I wouldn't be here today without my church. I would not be here without the power of unity. And of course, we couldn't possibly cover all the Bible says about unity and its impact. So I encourage you, as always, to dig in, continue to reveal the impact of true Christian unity. Our goal this session, my hope, is to look at a few impacts of unity. And I'm going to kind of divide them into two categories. The first category is the impact of unity within the church. And then secondly, the impact of unity on the unbelieving world. So the impact we have on one another and then the impact our unity has on the world. And my hope is within those categories, we can expound on five points of impact. It's goodness, it's pleasantness, it's witness, it's reach, and it's nourishing. And my hope is that if you take nothing else from this teaching, that you would have a better understanding of how your life is impacting those around you, and that you would desire a spirit of unity in your life. As has been said before, we're not meant to do this alone. So before we dive in, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, I thank you for this conference, and I, I thank you for all the men that tirelessly, tirelessly and willingly serve it year after year. Thank you for all the teachers. I just pray now that we would all have hearts, mine included, to receive from you this morning. Lord, I pray that we would be transformed by the hearing of your word, and I pray that I would decrease so that you may increase, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Psalm 133 is short, but anybody that knows me knows I'm long-winded, so I'll make it work. He begins, we'll just read the psalm to get, get the context. The psalmist writes, Behold, 
how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The psalmist begins with behold, and you guys are all learned Bible students, so you know that means pay attention. And as the church, we need to pay attention to the message of unity more now than ever. That statement has probably been said for ages, and yet it still holds true. Why? Well, the world continues to get darker, and it continues to become more divided over time. As Jesus' return inches closer, our unity's effect on the health of the church and witness to the world is even more critical. We need to pay attention to unity. We need to behold. And it's not breaking news when I say the world is more divided now than ever. You guys see it. You experience it every single day. Granted, there is that population of folks out there that are trying to find and bring peace, but are trying to do so without the prince of peace. That's not the peace this world needs. The world needs the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. It's the only peace that guards our hearts and minds through Christ. Paul tells us in that same section that we are to be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That's the process which leads to true peace, the peace of God. The world needs prayer that leads to the true peace of God, which means the world needs the church. And they need a church that is maintaining true spiritual unity. So what about the churches out there that are not teaching sound doctrine? Well, I'm not saying we're to forsake the Bible to lock arms with churches we know nothing about or are unbiblical, of course. My primary focus this morning is on each one of us and our specific churches that we go to. There's a section in 2 Kings with Elisha where he's back at the school of prophets and sends out some fellows to go and get some stuff to make a stew. You guys all know this, this story probably. And um, they come back, they bring the gourds back, and they make the stew, and then it's, it's realized that they had brought back these poisonous gourds. And they go, there's death in the pot, right? And so what's Elisha do? He grabs the meal and he casts it into the pot. And then it's, it's good. It's healed. The, the stew has been healed. And Charles Spurgeon, talking about that specific section, he says that's, that's the whole of the, the church that's teaching bad doctrine, the false teaching. You could never possibly pull all of that out. Just like the gourds, you couldn't have extracted the gourds. It was ruined. It was poisoned. So what does he do? He casts wholesome meal into it. And that's, that's us. That's what we need to be. We need to be the wholesome meal cast into the bad teaching and into the bad doctrine. We all agree um, that the world is divided. So we must be united. We have to be wholesome meal. And so I asked myself some questions as I was thinking about this, and I'll ask them to you. Are you operating as the wholesome meal in your own life? Are you displaying the spirit of unity or getting right to the point? Do you contribute to the division? Are you getting overly worked up and tied up in profitless arguments? 
worldly and social issues that aren't kingdom issues? Of course, we all know social media is a playground for division and disunity, isn't it? When uh, I was praying about this and just meditating on the word, of course, you are observing life and you're seeing what's going on around you. And there was this event that occurred recently. And I don't watch football. I don't watch sports. I, I can't kick a ball, can't throw a football, can't catch one either. I have no physical inclination whatsoever. But, of course, this DeMar Hamlin story broke, right? And I'm sure we're all familiar with it. Young man had cardiac arrest and, and uh, teams praying for him on the field and they rushed him to the hospital. And I saw something fascinating. In, in the beginning moments, I saw in those first few stages of this tragedy, I saw so many folks, believers, arguing on the internet about whether or not he received a vaccine rather than uniting in prayer for him or calling for prayer for his family. Um, and, and I asked, I was like, what do you think that says to the unbelieving world? Even more so, what do you think it says to other believers? Um, how could that, you know, make Christians in general appear to the world? So what's that do to Christians as a whole? And my, my point in thinking about this and mentioning it here is, as Christians, if we're going to get involved, if we're going to have an opinion on something like that, especially on social media, shouldn't it be to rally prayer warriors or say, hey, let's be praying for this guy, let's lift him up? Which of those responses is more unified? or more like Jesus, or glorifies God more. We're called to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers, if the world is divided and in a state of disunity, then we more than ever need to be united, putting aside our petty disputes, non-essential differences, profitless arguments for the furtherance of the gospel. We need to have a kingdom over everything mentality, to quote one of my favorite bands. Politics, pandemics, pharmaceuticals, whatever it may be, are not a real threat to Christian unity. But our responses to those things sure can be. Regardless of how bad any of those things may be, at any given time, there are opportunities for us to maintain unity within the body, to be a visible light in this dark world where nefarious agendas shouldn't surprise us at all. And listen, we all have opinions on these and many other things, and in some cases, your or my opinion, may it may be accurate. It may be absolutely correct. But are those the things that you're known for? Is that all you're known for then at that point? To quote out of the, the same book in 2 Kings, there's another story with Elisha. And he's taking this walk. He walks this similar path over and over and over again. And this notable woman, the scriptures tell us, you know, finally was kind of pursuing him, like really trying hard to get him to come in and eat and just kept, kept at him. And so then Elisha finally says, yeah, I'll go eat with you. Well, then every time he passed by, the scriptures tell us he, he would eat with her and her, her husband. So then it ends up that she goes to her husband, good wife, says, hey, husband, will you, can we build this guy a room? You know, just a small room, simple room with the things he needs. You know, a bed, a table, a chair, a lamp, simple things. And he obliges her. So then every time he came, he stayed now. So it, it's not just a, a section about 
feeding a guy. They, they were becoming friends, family. They were becoming more unified. And as I was looking at uh, Harry Ironside's notes on that, right by that verse, by those items, bed, table, chair, lamp, he wrote rest, communion, discipleship, instruction. And as I considered what that meant, I thought, wow, that's, that's what Elisha was known for. She gave him the things that were most important to him, the things he would need. He would need rest. He would need a place for communion, for discipleship, for instruction. And then I asked myself, and I'll ask you, what would you be known for? If somebody were to prepare a room for you, what would they put in it? And I think that's an important question to consider. Now, I'm not saying that we allow wickedness to rule either, and that we shouldn't stand up for what is biblically right. Scripture tells us, defend the weak and the fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. The truth is, you can have your opinions. You can have convictions. You can even be zealous about certain things, because we need zealots without question. Even Jesus had a zealot in his company. But the writers didn't give him any speaking parts, did they? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> in seriousness, though, nothing, nothing was written about the things Simon the Zealot was zealous for before meeting Jesus. All we know is he got to keep the Zealot title, and was now zealous for the Lord. And that's all we know about his converted life. And that's, that's good. Like He was one of the, the few that walked with him. The point is, have your opinions, your convictions. Be a zealot if that's what you're called to. But please, please, I urge you, don't let your opinions and zealousness destroy your witness. Simon the Zealot didn't have anything recorded, but he was one of the 12, and that's awesome. I have opinions and convictions like every one of you. Some of you that know me well know my opinions. But I never want it to be a cause of disunity among my brothers and sisters. And I never want it to paint an inaccurate picture of Jesus to the unbelieving world. As Paul says to the Romans, happy is he who does not condemn himself and what he approves. What we put out there is important, men. We all do have a united mission. And that's to go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. So ask yourself, what am I teaching those who are watching me? What am I known for? As I considered unity in light of recent events, personal events, it was overwhelming how strong the power of unity is in the body in the midst of a tragedy or a trial. Perhaps, partly because we recognize what's really important, What's really of value? Petty disputes, differences, arguments. These petty things seem to almost disappear. Or rather, they just exist as they really are. Petty. I and many of us here today have seen firsthand this past month the impact of unity. I can tell you it is good. And it is pleasant. But we must strive to maintain unity outside of these tragic times, outside of persecution. Unity should be a visible marker of our faith at all times in all seasons. So, behold, as we look at a few aspects of the impact or fruit of unity.
the writer says, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. How good. This is objectively good. These are facts. Brothers dwelling together is good. What else does God say is good? I immediately think of the creation account. God called his work good, even very good. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. God can call things good because he himself is good. Even when Jesus is approached by the man saying, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. God is good, and therefore the standard of what is good. In the, uh, my devotions, I was in Amos during this time. And in the third of five visions, the Lord shows him in chapter 7, verse 7. He says, Behold, the Lord stood on a wall made with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. A plumb line, for those of you that don't know, is used by carpenters to ensure that what's being built is perfectly vertical. It's a line with a weight, essentially. And so gravity says, yeah, that's, that's straight. It's vertical. The plumb line doesn't adjust. But what is being built should be built to the standard of that plumb line. God's word, that's our plumb line. It's the measure by which we know if we are living in a way pleasing to him. So when God's word, the plumb line, says how good it is for brethren to dwell together in unity, guys, it, it must be really good. On par with other things the Lord calls good, which is our first impact to unity. It's goodness. Objective goodness. The antithesis can also be true of this statement. How bad it is for brethren to dwell together in disunity. I believe at this event, we get a little glimpse into that goodness, right? Just dwelling together in unity. But unity here isn't just good. He says how good and how pleasant it is. How pleasant it is. This is experientially pleasant. The experience is pleasant. Not only is it objectively good, but our experience is pleasant. Not all that is good, guys, we know this, will necessarily be pleasant. For example, in Romans 8, Paul says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. This is good, but tragedy in itself is not good. Death is not good. But God mixes it with other ingredients, if you will, to make it good according to his purpose. I read one time about a cup of coffee, and the, the writer that wrote it said, you know, a filter isn't good. You're not going to go munch on a filter. You're not going to stick a coffee bean unless it's covered in chocolate in your mouth and chomp on that and go, oh, this is delicious. You're definitely not going to take a spoonful of coffee grounds and go, oh, man, this is excellent coffee. And you're not going to, you know, take an empty cup, put it up to your mouth and go, mm, refreshing, I'm awake now. But when you put all those things together, you, what comes out of it is this really pleasant drink for most of us. But I realize I still drink the bitter stuff. So if you want more coffee knowledge, you can go to Rich and Zach. They can really teach you some good stuff. They drink real coffee. I drink the bitter burnt stuff. But things working together for good is not necessarily pleasant, right? When we think of all the things we can define as a pleasant experience, if we're being honest with ourselves, we can also reason that many of those things are not necessarily good. 
But dwelling together in unity, God's word says, how good and how pleasant. And that repetition of how gives to me this idea of equal importance to both of these elements of dwelling together in unity. It's importantly good and just as importantly, it's pleasant. And plainly put, it is far from pleasant to dwell with anyone in a state of disunity. This in itself must be a theme because we've heard two people talk about it. It's been mentioned twice at this retreat, but I will mention it too, married men. Ever been in a time of intense fellowship, and that's what we call arguments at CCO, with your wife? You feel any pleasure dwelling together in those times? No, of course not. But not to leave you guys out, you men with roomies, you ever in a disagreement with your brothers at home? Feeling pleasure in that moment? Is it pleasant to dwell together with them? Of course not. And that brings us to that second impact of unity that we experience as believers. It's pleasantness. A pleasure that is also objectively good by God's standard. And that is really good. So the writer continues how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And this is such a great example of this, to me, at least, this event. I love getting together with all of you. But doesn't this also paint a picture of eternity in your mind? You know, this is our future. We will be dwelling together in unity for eternity. That will be nothing short of good and pleasant. And here, our goal should be to dwell well. While we have a choice of how we maintain this unity, because maintaining unity takes work, and it is constantly under attack. It makes sense to me that Satan would seek to attack our unity because unity is good. It is pleasant by God's standard. It's powerful, testifies to the unity of the Godhead. This is a critical area of attack, and we cannot give him a foothold. He wants to pit us against one another. He wants us to be petty. He doesn't want us to have that deep relationship that allows us to endure trials together to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. If we give them a foothold, the body becomes dismembered and stops working together, which is detrimental to the church, but also detrimental to our witness. Turn with me to John 17. In regards to that witness aspect of our impact of unity, I wanted to look at a couple verses here with you. And you all know where we're going because we've been here before. In John 17, beginning in verse 20, Jesus prays, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And earlier in this prayer, Jesus had been praying specifically for his disciples, that they may be one as we are, in verse 11, preserved from the wicked one and sanctified in truth. Specifically in that verse, the aim is that they would be one as the Father and Jesus are. Earlier in chapter 15, the verse that we went over yesterday as well, Jesus teaches to abide in him. There are the branches, he's divine, that they love one another, as Jesus says, I loved you. Followed by greater love as no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. We continue to observe this incredible importance of oneness and unity. Not a manufactured unity or uniformity, but a unity that comes from the Lord. It's in his character and he desires it for all of us. Jesus now shifts his prayer here in this section. He says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. 
Those who will believe, that's everyone to come along after these men, the disciples. This is a prayer that takes us into the future. It's a prayer for us and everyone until Jesus comes back to take us home. Preservation from the wicked one and sanctification by the truth continues in the prayer for us, as well as our oneness and our unity. And as he continues in this prayer, he says that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, that they all may be one. The prayer, those who will believe in me, that they all may be one. This is unity. This breaks down all partitions and barriers between all people groups. To be united, our identity needs to be in Christ. Our old self is dead, we're a new creation. Paul writes, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Our fleshly passions and our desires are dead. Paul writes to the Galatians, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The world is dead to us. We're dead to the world. Paul writes in Galatians, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I am dead and Christ lives in me. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul writes to the Galatians. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Being unified in ourselves, as Rich talked about, and finding our identity in Jesus we're more able to love one another as Christ loves us and therefore more unified. Jesus continues, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. And the foundation of our unity identified in this statement, this is how unified we should be. This is the level of unity we should have. It should mirror the unity of the Father and Son. And this is not something that can be manufactured, as I earlier stated. We can't make this up. This is a supernatural quality we're, we're to embody, we're to maintain this, recognize it. Not only is the depth identified here, but also another interesting distinction to note is the father and son are just as different from one another as they are one. Again, unity is not a call to uniformity. We're supposed to be different, but united in truth, faith, and love. I mean, you, you guys have been spending some time around these fires. We're all very different, like very different people, um, different jokes, different accents, looks, abilities, but yet we all come together. Why? Jesus, right? Like we all agree on that. Like we're all here for the same reasons to hear from him. Paul says there should be no schism in the body but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body. We're the body. Just as Paul lays out here. We're all different parts and members of the body, distinct from one another, but united by the same body, one in us. Shared fellowship with the Father and Son. Zach talked about the importance of the body and its different members as well. Um... Remember, everyone is a member of the body, which means someone has to be the mouth, but someone also has to be the armpit. 
He said the nose, but yeah, both, both work, armpit, nose. As he continues in this prayer, Jesus says that the world may believe that you sent me. This is our focus right here as it pertains to the impact of unity on the unbelieving world. It's as if there is some onus placed on our unity and its effect on the world believing that Jesus truly is the Son of God. Guys, this isn't just some small thing where we don't get to like someone or we coexist begrudgingly with our brothers and sisters. This is a matter of life or death for the unbelieving world, as I see it. And what does it say to the world when we're at each other's throats? Not only that, but what kind of damage is it doing to the legitimacy that we know to be absolutely true of the gospel message? Not to mention the detriment to our brothers and sisters when we do those things. That the world may believe that you sent me is no light-hearted statement in this prayer. This idea of unity in this statement is made in some of Jesus' final words of prayer before he's arrested and taken away. It's so important to him, in fact, that he repeats this idea and expands on this. In the following verses, he says, In the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. And have loved them as you have loved me, he adds on to it. So again, we have a real responsibility to the credibility of the gospel message by the way we love one another, our unity. As Jesus tells Nicodemus, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We have a responsibility in the world believing the factual nature of that statement. That as Jesus prayed, they would believe you sent me and that you love them, the world, as you have loved me. So do our interactions and relationships show the world Jesus? Of course, we know people don't believe for all kinds of reasons. But how much of the world's disbelief could be rooted in the division and disunity they see among believers? I believe wholeheartedly that this prayer was answered. But unity is under attack by the enemy. Sin clouds the very good and pleasant nature of true spiritual unity. So the third impact of maintaining unity is the powerful witness we as the church can have and should have on the unbelieving world. It testifies to the unity of the Father and Son and the truth of the gospel message. And our unity plays an important part in the conversion of believers. So back in Psalm 133, as he continues, he's going to use two metaphors to describe what this good and pleasant unity is like. Verse 2, he says, It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. This precious oil, this is a holy anointing oil. When I looked at Exodus 30, I was able to pull some of the ingredients, or all the ingredients. There's myrrh and cinnamon, sweet-smelling cane, and cassia. This ointment was used for the high priest and his sons, but Aaron was anointed on the top of his head. This is more than a sprinkling as well, as we see in Exodus and Leviticus, because the writer here tells us it runs down. So this is more than just the sprinkling. So Moses, acting on behalf of God, pours this oil on Aaron's head, and it descends downward, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron. Again, the significance of this being the high priest here, Aaron specifically. 
The oil continues downward. It saturates his beard. And at the point where the beard meets his garments, it continues downward. If you want a visible example of that, Matthew Scott, you can just look at how his beard touches his shirt. This, this oil is poured by someone else onto the head, right? From there, it descends downward to and through the beard, touching and then saturating the edge of his garments. So why compare good and pleasant unity to oil? Well, Charles Spurgeon said, he's a lot smarter than me. The ointment was holy, prepared in accordance with the divine prescription. Church union is sacred, must spring from the love commanded by God, be based on the principles laid down by God, and exist for the ends appointed of God. The anointing was from God through Moses, who acted on behalf of God in the matter. Church unity is of the Holy Spirit through Jesus' mediator. Therefore, it should be prayed for and thankfully acknowledged. By the anointing, Aaron became consecrated and officially qualified to act as priest. By unity, the church as a whole lives its life of consecration and effectively ministers in the priesthood assigned it. And this is a great quote, but our focus is on the impact. So I'd like to draw our attention to another detail, and this is our fourth application. The fourth impact of unity is its reach, how it spreads, how it saturates. Just like the above metaphor, our Christian unity begins at the head, Jesus. Continues downward to the beard, his church, the body. It spreads to the garments it touches, just as our unity spreads throughout the church and each even reaches beyond to the unbelieving world. It doesn't just spread, though. It also saturates. It has a lasting effect on all it comes in contact with. It doesn't dry up quickly. If you know any men that put oil in their beards and they stand next to you, I mean, that smell goes for a while. Like, you can smell their beards for a minute. And while the psalmist is bringing our focus to the spreading of this oil, there is also an element of its aroma. We mentioned the ingredients in that scent. It's going to travel. Because of this, Christian unity has a way of spreading far beyond even where it's intended to. The second metaphor for unity is in the third and final verse of this psalm. He says, It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. As the dew of Hermon, um, Hermon here means a sanctuary. And as the dew, well, what is dew? Well, the definition is dew or night mist here. The scientific definition of dew is air with a higher moisture concentration, cools. This air produces condensation first. Soil moisture is also extremely critical to, pr to producing dew. So the dew of Hermon is the byproduct of perfect air and ground temperature and ground moisture. The dew does not create the conditions for its production. It is a byproduct created by these conditions. And he continues, he goes, and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. Zion means parched place. Your King James will have, and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. So the night mist descends in the same way upon the mountains of Zion. Again, we know dew is formed by specific conditions. It is the moisture-rich air that infiltrates this entire area that the writer is referencing. The same perfect conditions are present in the lofty peaks of Hermon, rising over 9,000 feet above sea level, to the mountains or mounts around Zion, averaging around 2,500 feet. This same night mist des descends upon both locations 
producing this dew. Painter and missionary, among other titles, Charles Vandeveld said of this region, in no part of the whole country is such a heavy dew observed as that which falls in the districts near Hermon. I've never been there, so I'm going to trust that he's right. So why compare a good and pleasant unity to the dew resting on these mountains? It brings us to our fifth and final application of the impact of unity. Unity like the dew is produced from above and nourishes and refreshes all those dwelling in its vicinity. Like the high peaks of Hermon and the low peaks of Zion, God doesn't withhold his blessings and no one is out of reach. Unity from above refreshes and nourishes the rich in the same way it does the poor. Unity refreshes and nourishes the rejoicing and the sad. Unity nourishes the seasoned believers and the baby Christians. Unity like this night mist and dew can take dry and parched conditions and transform them into a nourishing and fertile environment. While the psalmist is placing our focus on the descending nature, how it descends downward, just like the oil, this dew also has, I believe, a witnessing element, and that is the appearance of abundantly nourished conditions to those in dry and parched environments. Imagine what this type of unity looks like to an unbeliever. When it's nourished and rich and they're feeling hungry and parched. It's almost like an oasis in the desert. We can be an oasis in that desert. So the psalmist concludes, for there the Lord commanded the blessing. Where? Where brothers dwell together in unity. There we are commanded the blessing. And what's the blessing he gives us? Life forevermore. Unity is part of the picture of eternity. I always say we've already begun eternity as believers. This side of it, we have a specific mission, right? A one-of-a-kind mission to go out and make disciples. This part of eternity, that's the only time we get to do that. Maintaining unity will result in a visible peace that binds us together and has a fruitful impact here and into eternity. And the impact of true Christian unity can truly be limitless. The oil and soil of the Lord is where this blessing of life forevermore occurs. Just like the holy oil spreading and saturating and the nourishing dew in both places, so it is when we are dwelling together in unity. And when we dwell together in good and pleasant unity, it is a witness to those in dry, desert-like conditions. We can maintain this unity by being unified within ourselves first, as Pastor Rich pointed out. By the power of the Holy Spirit, abiding with Jesus and measuring our lives against the plumb line of God. We need to put aside our petty differences. Consider the words we speak and the words we type. Consider the witness we have and recognize the great impact our unity has on one another and on the unbelieving world. I pray that we all would desire unity. Let's give the Lord a first place position that is without a runner-up. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for these brothers, and I thank you for unity. I, I pray for myself and for all of us that we would put aside those things, Lord, that we would draw in to one another that we would be a, a witness to you, that we would glorify you in our unity. I pray in this 
these final teachings this day and what we heard yesterday that, again, our hearts would be transformed, Lord, that we would just have a, a refreshed view on how we're operating day to day with you. Lord, help us to walk as you've walked. Help us to be lights in this dark world. Help us to be unified in a world that is so divided. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, man.